Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Circumstances were to magnify one of them in size and strength, took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours. Then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Tarantula. That's with an exclamation point. It's from 1955. The studio was Universal Pictures. The release date was December 23rd, 1955. The running time, 80 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guy gives it three out of four stars. He writes, a scientist played by Leo G. Carroll has a new growth formula which works a little too well, and pretty soon there's a humongous spider chewing up the countryside. One of the best giant insect films, with fast pacing, convincing special effects, and an interesting subplot detailing the formula's effect on humans. Now I believe I've mentioned over the years that the first film that my dad saw in the theater was the 1954 movie Them, which was about giant mutated ants that terrorize a town. Well, Tarantula is essentially the same premise, but it's a spider, not an ant. Now, I like we saw Tarantula on TV when I was a kid, but I rediscovered it when I bought a two-volume DVD set with uh, classic sci-fi movies from the 1950s on it. All right, let's get into the main cast. We have John Agar, who plays Dr. Matt Hastings. Before his film career, Agar was best known for being married to Shirley Temple in 1945. It was both of their first marriages. And they remained married until 1950 and then divorced, mostly due to Agar's drinking problem. Because of Agar's marriage to Temple, he was able to be signed by David O. Selznick, who Temple worked for at the time. He was also given acting lessons. And it's the old adage, it's not what you know, but who you know. 
and Agar was a typical character actor in Hold Hollywood, but remained working steadily and did a number of B-films, including science fiction films and westerns. Mara Corday plays Stephanie Clayton. Now, Corday began as a dancer before getting into acting in the early 1950s and was mostly relegated to B-movies and TV shows. She is probably best known for being a Playboy Playmate in the October 1958 issue. She also ended up being a lifelong friend of Clint Eastwood, whom she met in the early years at Universal Pictures as they were both contract players. Corday pretty much left the business in the 60s, but later in life appeared in small roles in Clint Eastwood films like The Gauntlet, Sudden Impact, Pink Cadillac, and The Rookie. And you'll understand why I brought up Eastwood as we get further into this episode. Leo G. Carroll plays Professor Gerald Deemer. Carroll, like many actors of the early era, began on stage. He would transition to motion pictures in the 1930s. His best-known work would come from being in six Alfred Hitchcock movies. They were Rebecca, Suspicion, Spellbound, The Paradigm Case, Strangers on a Train, and North by Northwest. As was the case in Tarantula, Carroll was usually typecast as a doctor or professor. He also gained fame from his role in the TV series The Man from UNCLE. The director, Jack Arnold. Arnold started as a documentary director in the 1950s, but he found a niche in directing sci-fi films. The first notable being It Came From Outer Space, and then the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, and then its sequel. He later transitioned into television in the 1960s, directing TV shows like Peter Gunn, Rawhide, Clint Eastwood, Gilligan's Island, The Brady Bunch, and The Love Boat. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins in the Arizona desert, as we see a man in his pajamas wandering aimlessly. We then see his face, and it looks like a combination of the Wolfman and Planet of the Apes. He eventually collapses and dies. We meet Dr. Matt Hastings, played by John Agar, who is summoned by Sheriff Jack Andrews, played by Nestor Pavia, and he examines the deformed being that died in the desert. The sheriff believes that the body could be that of Eric Jacobs, who is a biological scientist that went missing. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Johnny. I phoned Deemer right away. He said he'd be over to see if this is him. You know Deemer, don't you? Yeah, when I opened my office, I went out to pay my respects. It was polite enough, but I had the feeling I wasn't welcome, so I never went back. Oh, some of these big brains never learn manners. Here he is, Barney. Hi, Doc. Hello, Barney. You figure this one out, and you're good. sure that's not Jacobs this man has had the disease for years I saw Jacobs last month he looked okay then they're in the back room professor it's Eric all right he was my friend for 30 years Better come outside, Professor. Yes. You all through in there? Yeah. Leave us alone for a minute, will you, Bunny? Yeah, sure. 
Professor, I have to know all about it. Why he looks that way, why he was missing. Sheriff, have you ever watched a friend dying before your eyes and not been able to help? That's the worst of it. Being helpless. It's particularly tough when you're a physician and you know what's wrong with him. And there isn't a single solitary thing you or anyone else can do. When I saw the body, I, I thought it was acromegalia. But that's not possible. Acromegalia? The pituitary gland goes haywire, Jack. It distorts the face, neck, hands, and feet. I met Jacobs a couple of years ago at your place. The sheriff saw him about a month ago. He looked normal then. It is acromegalia. But in every case I've ever heard of, it, it's taken years to produce the deformity. I know. The history of medicine is the history of the unusual. Perhaps Eric had been ill for years, who knows? But it was only four days ago that he began to complain of muscular pain. Neither of us thought too much about it. These things happen as you grow older. And the next morning, he began to... to change. Maybe we'd better do an autopsy just to make sure. I don't think that'll be necessary. I was in attendance and I signed the death certificate. Oh, I see. How come we found him on the desert? Dr. Jacobs became delirious last night, broke out of the house and ran into the desert. Are you certain he hadn't complained of anything before that time? There's nothing I can add to what I've already said. Eric had no family. I'll arrange for the funeral. Thank you for calling me so promptly. Goodbye, Dr. Hastings. Professor? Acromegalia. You heard the man. I sure did. Yeah, a young fellow like you can't stack what he knows against the professor. The trouble is, Doc, you hate to admit you're wrong. We all make mistakes, Jack. This isn't one of mine. Even in B-pictures from long ago, the scores were always terrific. Some of the current big-budget films don't even have scores as good as these old films. Since I had no idea what that acro disease was that they were talking about, I checked out a quick description, uh, and it has to do with the hands and feet, and there's sometimes the forehead and jaw when they become enlarged. And this can occur if the pituitary gland produces an excess growth hormone. And there's your science lesson for the day. We are then taken to Professor Deemer's home, which is also his laboratory. It's here where we see a number of caged animals, all of which are much larger than normal-sized animals. The professor has been doing injection experiments on rats, guinea pigs, monkeys, and of course a tarantula, which has the largest size growth so far. We then see another deformed man, similar to the guy we found in the desert in the beginning of the film. This happens to be the assistant to Professor Deemer named Paul Lund. He sneaks up on Deemer and attacks him. After 
the melee, Paul throws a stool at Deemer and shatters the glass cage holding the giant tarantula, and it escapes from the house. Paul knocks out Deemer and then collapses and dies. The lab catches on fire, and Deemer wakes up in time to put it out, but much of the equipment is destroyed. Deemer takes Paul's body to the desert to bury him. The next day, Matt returns to the sheriff's office to discuss his findings, which was that no reported cases of acromegalia were reported in the Phoenix area, specifically those with symptoms developing as quickly as supposedly Eric Jacobs had. In Matt's view, something else is going on. Of course, he's correct, because it's obvious Professor Deemer is doing some weird growth hormone experiments and trying to steer the authorities and other medical people in the wrong direction. Also, the fact that no autopsy was performed was very suspicious. Later in that day, Stephanie Clayton, played by Mara Corday, arrives in town, and she's a grad student assigned to do some research as another assistant for Professor Deemer. Stephanie, for some reason, goes by the nickname Steve. Since there's only one taxi cab in town, Matt offers to give her a ride to Deemer's house. Think it's about time? Dr. Matt Hastings. Stephanie Clayton. Steve. I like Steve. I'm really indebted to you, Dr. Hastings, for this ride. Or rather, I'm indebted to your friend Josh. So am I. I guess it's none of my business asking why you're going out to Deemer's place, but... Why not? I'm doing graduate work in biology. The professor teaches it already did. I knew it would happen. Give women the vote and what do you get? Lady Zion. <laughs> well, students so far. You see, I wrote a paper on the nutritional aspects of expanding populations. And Professor Jacobs read it and offered me a job for the summer. Uh, how about a place to live? There are a couple of nice boarding houses in Desert Rock. Cost less than a hotel. Well, no. I'm going to stay at the professor's. You see, it's all part of my contract. I'll be laboratory technician, cook, student. Well, the whole works. Oh, I see. Well, it's one way of earning a master's. And it's worth it working with people like Deemer and Professor Jacobs. How well did you know Eric Jacobs? Oh, I've never met him. He just read the paper and liked Matt was that. He's dead. Died yesterday morning. How? Glandular condition called acromegalia. Acromegalia? Isn't that a very rare disease? Extremely. Are you sure it was that? No. No, I'm not sure at all. Oh? Looks like nobody's home. There must be someone. That's Joe Birch's car over there. Might as well. The electric panel shorted. And, well, you can see for yourself. You estimated the amount of damage yet, Professor? Well, the greatest damage, of course, was to the work that was destroyed. Let's get back to Jacobs. Why did he leave? I've told you all that is. Will you gentlemen excuse me? Uh, one more picture. Please. 
Pat the monkey, Professor. I said that was all. I think that ought to be enough, Joe. Professor's had a rough couple of days. Thank you, Dr. Hastings. Thanks for the story, Professor. I didn't mean to add to your troubles. Come on, Ridley. See you later, Matt. See you, Joe. I thought I'd never get rid of them. You must forgive an old man. Uh, have I uh, met you before, miss? Oh, uh, no, I... This is Stephanie Clayton. It seems Professor Jacobs wrote for an assistant. She's it. Ah, yes, yes. Eric told me you were coming. But I didn't expect to see a biologist that looked like you. Well, that was intended as a compliment. I'm afraid I've gotten a bit rusty. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Well, I don't know that you'll want to stay on with all that has happened. You're welcome to, of course. But, uh, Eric... Oh, I know. Uh, Dr. Hastings told me on the way out. I see. Well, with Eric gone, <laughs> I'm alone. Oh, I'm sure I can be of service. I mean, if you're going to continue with your work. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. For Eric's sake, if nothing else. Wasn't Paul Lund working with you, Professor Deemer? Paul? Yes, he was studying for his doctorate when I was a freshman. I'd heard he came here. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Paul Lund. No, he's not with us anymore. Well, come now, Miss Clayton. Let me show you my lab. Are you interested at all, Doctor? Now, for those that haven't seen the film, Mara Corday looks a lot like Gina Gershon. Deemer shows Matt and Steve the parts of his lab that were not destroyed by the fire. Most importantly, he describes the formula he's been injecting into his subjects, which is supposed to be a synthetic food substance, as he believes that the future world food shortages will lead to this kind of need. Now keep in mind, we the audience know he's injecting animals and people, but Matt and Steve do not know this. Now, it's interesting that this plot point is absolutely true today and will continue to be true for the foreseeable future as, as of course, there are too many people and not enough resources and this will cause global food issues. Deemer agrees to let Matt do an official autopsy on Eric Jacobs as Matt continues to express his doubts about Deemer's diagnosis. Matt does the autopsy and confirms that Jacobs did indeed have acromegalia, much to the delight of the sheriff, who lectures Matt for questioning Professor Deemer's diagnosis. Steve, in the meantime, is doing well as the assistant to Deemer, learning about the professor's nutrient formula, which causes strength and growth at a rapid rate. Deemer admits that he needs to fine-tune the abnormalities from the experiments before giving the formula to humans, but nothing seems out of the ordinary to Steve. Also, Deemer has no idea that the giant tarantula is actually on the loose. I'm assuming he believed it perished in the fire. However, there are some signs that Deemer may have injected himself with the formula, as we notice his hands are developing abnormalities, like giant cysts on his knuckles. Plus, he constantly itches and rubs his right arm. As expected, there is a minor love story angle shoehorned into this plot, as Matt and Steve end up spending time together when she's not working at the professor's house. However, it's not entirely forced, as when the pair decide to have a talk near a rock formation, it crumbles apart like an earthquake occurred. Now, the viewer can assume it's a giant tarantula, though we never actually see it. Matt and Steve just think it's some strange abnormality and head back to town. However, when they drive off, we see the giant tarantula ourselves. By the way, it's worth mentioning, the special effects, of course, are campy to say the least, but I think that's the charm of these old films. Personally, it's a lot more fun than CGI today, in my opinion, and the score alone makes up for any lack of modern effects. 
Steve invites Matt to the professor's house to see the status of the test animals and is horrified to discover that the rat and rabbit are growing rapidly and not in a healthy way. Matt is called away, and when he leaves, the professor scolds Steve for bringing Matt to his lab, as he claims his work is confidential. More disturbing to Steve is that the professor's face is starting to show growth abnormalities, especially in the jaw area. Before going back to his office, Matt decides to investigate the collapsed rock formation again and runs into the sheriff, who informs him of a strange occurrence that happened at a cattle ranch nearby, where the rancher's cattle had been slaughtered by an unknown creature. No footprints or blood, just skeletal bones of the cows stripped clean. Later that night, we see the giant tarantula appear on the top of the mountain, which spooks the horses at the ranch. Finally, we see the tarantula up close, and the rancher tries to kill it with a shotgun. That attempt obviously fails miserably, and the rancher meets his demise. All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and this is where the action gets really good with the tarantula scenes, and it wreaks havoc on the town. Plus, you get a very early role from Clint Eastwood, who plays a fighter jet pilot tasked with killing the giant tarantula. Here's a quick scene from that. All right, Ben. Fire two rockets on this first pass. You could probably guess the outcome, but the fun campiness of this film is worth checking out. And you'll find out what happens to the professor and the backstory about the creation of the formula, along with some footage of real tarantulas attacking real-life creatures. It's kind of cool. Plus, at 80 minutes, this film really never does get boring. All right, a few fun facts. The tarantula was actually a live spider. Air jets were used to make it move in the desired way over a miniature landscape. Surprisingly... Tarantula was the fourth biggest film at the U.S. box office in December of 1955, and it earned over $1.1 million. There you go. All right. Now, I've had Lindsay on for many episodes, and she does like old films, but will she like campy old sci-fi B-films? We're going to find out as Lindsay gives me her fresh take on this, dare I say, sci-fi classic. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Lindsay. Welcome back. Hi, Brian. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back again. Okay, so when I first mentioned this movie, you're like, really? You're going to show me giant spiders? Like, what are you talking about? You already showed me Good Luck Chuck. What are you doing to me? I hate spiders, and I really hate tarantulas, so this did not sound appealing at all. But how long into the movie did you completely do a 180? Like one minute. (laughs) All right, so tell me, why did you like the film? Well, I mean, it was campy in all the right ways. It moved itself along well. I was pleasantly surprised by how they made the special effects in this thing work. Because I think that was something I just wondered how they were going to make a giant tarantula. I mean, it's the 50s, man. Like, how are they going to figure this out? You know, it's this isn't a Michael Bay film. Uh, Thank and, God. He yeah, would have ruined it. He would have ruined it. More explosions, right? But um, And it would have looked actually more fake, ironically. Yeah, it probably would have. But this one, the way they went about making this work for the time was pretty awesome. And I don't know, the the whole story was interesting. It like kind of held my attention. Some of these older films that I've watched with you, I've complained a little bit that while I liked them, 
at a hard time following the story. Like it does weird things. It it you know, they it's almost like they leave things out and certain plot lines are not complete and you're like, "Wait, what what just happened?" You know, you get these really confusing moments. And this one, despite the fact that I mean, yes, it's about a giant spider, I never had that at all. I mean, they advanced the plot well. I understood what was going on. Like, I was never confused. I I never had a moment during this film like I did from other films from this era. So I enjoyed it, and I actually thought the scenery was cool. It's very, like, Arizona deserty, and um, I don't know. I, I thought the characters were kind of interesting, and this was a win for me. <laughs> I was not expecting that, but this one is a thumbs up. Well, I think what's interesting about the plot is the the impetus of the professor to create a new food supply for people because even back in the 50s they knew that the population growth wouldn't sustain like the the food supply wouldn't sustain how the population was growing. We're still doing that with that today. Absolutely. I mean, that that concept was ahead of its time for sure. I mm-hmm. mean, the professor makes a point to say, like, we're going to outpace our ability to produce food to feed ourselves. And obviously he was doing these experiments, trying to figure out certain things. And clearly they went a bit um, haywire. But um, there were some ahead of its time ideas in here. And, you know, the um, the lead female character in here a scientist named Stephanie who went by Steve, which I think is really cool because to your point, she probably didn't want people to judge her about being a scientist and a biologist based on the fact that she was a woman. Yeah. So she was using this nickname because it's sort of, um, you know, uh, was a camouflage, yeah. right, for, for her actual gender so that there was no judgment there. But she came out to this doctor, professor's, you know, home, which turned out to be his laboratory. Um, and I liked, I liked that character, too. I liked her a lot. So when the movie first starts, you actually almost think it's like a, almost a monster movie in the sense of because you see this deformed person die in the desert. And then you're like, wonder what is this? The same? Am I watching the right movie? Because you would think right off the bat they'd be showing giant insects all over the place. And what's interesting is you see that person, and your first gut reaction, knowing that this movie is about a giant tarantula, is that the tarantula did this to him. Right. But what's so interesting is like that's not exactly what happened. No. And you learn that based on how this plot advances. So I don't know for an older film of this type, I really like how it moved itself along like again i this was just pure like enjoyment and i love the time period in which this took place so it's i like seeing the outfits i like seeing the scenery i love what the lobby of the hotel looks like that um stephanie slash steve uh the uh the science i guess intern if you will biology intern is staying at i love the cars i just think even there's a scene where um, the well, that, that was lead... actually Matt's office. Oh, that was that's Matt's an office, office? building. Oh, yeah, because like she's hotel. well, it looks like a hotel, but it's not. I think he's just like kind of Why a dispatcher. Why was she in there? Uh, she was waiting to get. Oh, I guess that's like the main hub, maybe, of the town. It is oh. kind of confusing, but she stays with the professor at his house. Oh, yeah, but it is confusing. Well, but... it looked like a hotel, but either yeah. way, mm-hmm. it, Matt's office was cool. Yeah. It's yeah. a weird office. It's like a hotel office. Yeah. Um, 
And I just, even the scene where, where Matt and Steve are sitting on a park bench and I guess he's carrying packages for her and they're all right. wrapped up so perfectly in like the, the brown paper with the string, you know, tied around it. I'm like, oh, it was so much better in the 50s. Yeah. That was cool. Except so, for the giant spider. Well, the but, giant spider, yeah, was yeah. an exception. But I really enjoyed this film way more so than I thought. This is one of my favorites that you've shown. That's I crazy. I can't believe and I'm saying that. Watch nope, it. didn't even want to watch this. Thought this was the dumbest thing I had ever heard of. Well, there you go. Uh, well, soon you're going to be seeing them, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, yeah, that's about ants, isn't it? Okay, so uh, I, I think it, you, you brought up Michael Bay. If they made it today, it would be at least an hour longer, which would have killed the flow. There would have been way more gruesome death scenes. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it would have just been gorier. And actually, as we were mentioning, CGI actually makes things look more fake, ironically, when it comes to special effects. This one just did a good job with what it could do. Right. Making this to scale. That was the big thing yeah. about this was if this tarantula is supposed to be giant, it's been injected with some stuff. Yeah. The stuff made it super duper big. It like a hundred times its size and it kept getting bigger and more powerful and stronger. The way they produced scale in this film um, was really smart. And, and it worked. I mean obviously it's a little bit campy and whatever but they did such a great job of all the scenes you know it's coming over like the the, mountain. the mountains yeah. and it's coming over large like rock formations then and the house and, then... and and stuff and it's they really use scale to their advantage for this and they figured out how to do it in a way that actually worked and so I think it wasn't having, weird. having it in black and white helps because it could cover a lot of um, potential, mis- not mistakes, but it can hide a lot of imperfections yeah. because doing it in black and white, you can kind of do the shades and the, the spider being black could do it. I, I think it actually is more, it wouldn't have been as effective if it was in color. I feel like Vince Gilligan would have been proud of this. <laughs> you know, the very famous, I guess, writer, producer, director of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul because uh, there were some very cool camera angles which he's well known for all the great perspectives and vantage points from which he uh gets the shots and i feel like this film had several of those there's one where the spider is kind of coming down on a rancher who's trying to protect his you know his horses Mm -hmm. um there were cattle in one Mm -hmm. case but this was the horse scene and um i love that perspective it's so interesting it's not something i would imagine um, filmmakers of that time being able to capture that that vantage point. So mm-hmm. I, I think there were some really surprising but um, sophisticated, I guess, uh, camera angles that were used in here to get these shots. And I appreciated those moments when I saw them. And the score. So there would have been jump scares today, um, which I, I think are boring and kind of contrived. Here you actually could see, like, you were... The tension built up was kind of through the score, but also watching at the same time. So when there were scares, the the crescendo hit with the music, which I think is kind of missing in today's movies, too. Oh, they did a great job. I could have almost seen this being one of those films that they show on a screen and yeah. and are playing with like a live orchestra, right? Mm-hmm. To hit those, those moments and create those scenes. So I thought the music added significantly to uh, the feel of the film and i i can't believe i didn't want to watch this i mean i (laughs) i did think this is like 70 minutes or whatever i'm never going to get back but i'm glad that i did watch this one because this was one of my 
probably most favorite of these <laughs> older films that you showed to me, even though it is the campiest, yeah. weirdest, and sounded like the least interesting of, of anything that you had proposed. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I mean, think of it for what it is. Yeah. It's a 1950s movie about a giant spider. So take that for what you will. But, but the, the acting way, wasn't that bad either. No, and the way they pulled it off yeah. just worked. You, again, go in knowing that. But actually, right? the, the but, science wasn't bad either. Like, when they were talking about that, it came off as intelligent and not too far-fetched. Yeah, I mean, it was. there were a little hokey moments yeah. with, you know, putting the gloves in this tiny little box. Yeah, but you got to do that. You have to do that, but some, some things seemed a little, I mean, don't hold it too hard to the science because you're like, oh. But they're also like, you know pulling like potable water from yeah. like a faucet where there's like 8 billion experiments going yeah. on and like so there's some weird stuff but again if you take this for what it is it's this was really good and fun and interesting and I don't know like I'm still surprised I'm saying that I liked it but I did I really really did so if it can convert Lindsay who's definitely- and I hate spiders I hate tarantulas <laughs> they give me the the creeps I mean what's funny about it is that they're actually not dangerous for people, and I think they do some good stuff out in the desert. So They even mentioned in the movie, like, the normal tarantula has barely any venom, barely. and it's not poisonous. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt anybody. I mean, obviously, you got to imagine if this thing's like 100,000 well, times the size, yeah. you know, not great. But, I, I mean, I the last thing I wanted to do was watch a big old spider with hair rolling around, you know, on and the And now film, it's your favorite movie of all life, time. Have to say, I don't think I'll dismiss another one of these campy ones from the past, just... On face value, I I better check it out before I try to cast aspersions. Maybe I, I well, I can show you some Ed Wood movies, and that might change your mind. Perhaps, but this mm-hmm. one, um, I mean, you said, and you'd know better than I would, that mm-hmm. this was like a B movie even when it came oh, out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it did but well at the boxes. People you liked said it. Yeah. you said that it was like what the fourth or fifth the like, most popular movie, most popular of the movie that year. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I could see why though. If you were in a theater, yeah. this would look. This could be jump worthy if you were in the theater Even just campy because of the size of it. Three D of the time might have been fun. With oh the god, yeah, coming out of this the would have been amazing. If it, yeah. And if they did it today, they would have overdone it. Yeah. I mean, not only would it be too long, it would be way special effectsy. This like, actually, it was it was brisk enough to where it never wore out its welcome. And it would be gruesome for gruesome's yeah. sake. Yeah. And this didn't do that. Like it didn't should, have to. You could show this to a kid, and, and it'd be somewhat scary, but not crazy. Yeah, it it this it did everything it needed to do without going overboard like would be the more traditional way of making film today. It would have been this a fun drive-in movie. Yeah. Oh god, my I could imagine like popcorn like yeah. like blowing up out of like, you know, containers and people mm-hmm. screaming and all of that. It would have been pretty Actually, that would have been, been a fun. they could have done that where it, they could have attacked a, a drive-in where it comes over the oh, screen yeah, it comes and over the screen. That you're not be. sure if it's a uh the, th- the movie. Oh, okay. The, yeah. Is that is that a, a no. 2025 remake? No. Of a, 20, of a 1925- Don't even bother to try to remake anything today. No, I would hope they wouldn't because this one, I think, as as campy as it might be, it's I think this time. one really was of the time. And it did a great job. And in a very strange way, it's whole, I'd say it held up. Yeah. It held up over time. And it still creates a kind of entertaining, silly... Um, worthwhile i guess 70 minutes to see how film used to be from that more golden age of like we're figuring it all out and we're just gonna try all this stuff i mean this looks like one of those moments where they tried all this stuff 
and all the stuff worked. Well, the, the 50s were definitely the, sci- the campy sci-fi era. So this is kind of a fun one. And I feel like it worked. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly been familiar with some of the other, you know, films of that time that mm-hmm. are about monsters and such. War of the Worlds. Yeah, but this one was just fun. It was just fun. And like you said, not every film has to be super serious or overwhelming or Oscar worthy or nope. whatever. This thing isn't going to win a statue, but it was enjoyable. I'd rather watch this than some of the statue winning movies. Maybe, right? I mean, you know, I, I like some of these more serious independent film, and I have for a long time, but I also really enjoyed this, and I would recommend it. I mean, anybody who hasn't seen something like this in this genre, um, if you're at all curious, this would be a good one. Like, this would be a good one to check out and see how did they do these monster movies, you know, from back in the day when they didn't have the CGI and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I think you'll be surprised. I think you'll be surprised that it doesn't, look that bad no and I mean, you see be, a couple things don't get me wrong no, but, but they had to be more creative then they did and and they were and yeah. i think it worked yeah. and so i guess that's what really amazed me about this i thought this was gonna be so dumb but honestly it worked and um and this story was cohesive like i got it from start to finish i was never like what's happening here yeah. and i can't say that about many of the other movies from this time like you said they try to pack too much into well, too short a time film noir yeah and it's too complicated and they leave out entire chunks, and you're like, I'm sorry, like, I'm not, I'm usually pretty quick, but I'm not getting, like, what happened here? What is going on? And this one was just so, I, easy from start to finish. I totally understood it. So. Giant spiders. I, I recommend this. If you, if you're even curious, this one was good. Yeah. Thank Two. you for shaving this one for me. <laughs> Two thumbs up from Lindsay. Two enthusiastic thumbs up for me on or tarantula eight. exclamation point. Or, or eight legs up. Eight legs up. Yeah. Yeah. All eight. All eight. All fuzzy eight legs up. <laughs> Thanks. See it. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Captain Video. Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.